Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. And those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. LinkedIn recently released their fifth annual workplace learning report and had a lot of very interesting findings. Today, we're going to focus on a portion of that report, which you can find linked in the description that portion is focused on skill building, including reskilling and upskilling. And I'm pleased to have with us today Amy Borsetti, Senior Director of LinkedIn Learning Solutions, to discuss this important topic. She is a human behavior expert and industry leader in learning and development. Over the past 15 plus years, Amy has partnered with hundreds of organizations to help them reimagine how to harness the power of their people and leverage technology to achieve more. In working with LinkedIn's largest customers, Amy helps business leaders connect their business strategy to their talent strategy reimagining the future of work. As a leader, Amy is deeply passionate about creating a more diverse, inclusive, and equitable workplace and was recently named as one of the outstanding top 100 LGBT plus execs selected as one of San Francisco Business Times Outstanding Voices and featured in Go Magazine's 100 Women We Love. Thank you so much, Amy, for taking the time to be with me today. Absolutely. It's great to be here. Let's just jump right in. What what were the top three areas of focus for L&D programs for 2021, according to your report? Yeah, so according to our report and survey, um, there were essentially three that really stood out. Um, upskilling and reskilling was at the top of the stack. Uh, leadership and management uh, was another big one. And then virtual onboarding was our third at the top of the list. Pretty logical number three there in particular. Mm-hmm. Um Can you briefly, I'm sure our audience all knows the answer to this, but would you just briefly explain the difference between upskilling and reskilling? Oh, absolutely. Um, So upskilling is really about learning additional skills or enhancing existing uh, capabilities, uh, often with the goal of advancement. And when you think about reskilling, it's really about learning a new set of skills or training for a new role, often with the goal of, you know, transitioning to a new job or even a different industry. So those are kind of the the differences there. I appreciate that. Um, I mean, I think the pandemic naturally put a focus on on learning in general. Um, but mm-hmm. just based on on your understanding, why were upskilling and reskilling in particular ranked number one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a really, it's, it's a good question in terms of, um, you know, how do you stack rank this, these? They're all important. But when we think about the pressures that we have all experienced uh, over the last year, uh, for me, uh, that is certainly kind of dr- the driving force behind why this one has risen to the top. So there's a couple things um, that are at play here. First is um, when we think about the digital transformation that is happening at a speed that uh, is even faster than before the pandemic. Um, and when you think about that, you're talking about a major transition in terms of the jobs at play today, those that will be displaced, and then the new ones that will be created really because of this technology advancement. Uh, one insight that, that has really been grounding me lately is, uh, according to the World Economic Forum, I think they published this back in October, the rapid acceleration of automation and economic uncertainty uh, caused by the pandemic will literally shift the division of labor between humans and machines. And we're talking about, you know, 
leading to 85 million jobs that will be displaced and 97 million that will be new by 2025. Let's just call that like about three and a half years. Um, and so that has been a major pressure. And look, some of the you know largest enterprises globally have seen this shift coming. So this isn't new, but COVID kind of put it on a, a pace that was really um, you know unforeseen. And so many organizations have spent millions and even billions in some cases uh, future-proofing their business and their employees, knowing this was coming. Uh, so that was certainly one. And then the other one that I think about here um, is with the stance that so many organizations took after the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, um, DEI has really risen to the top in terms of priority as well. And this is also to, to create like an inclusive environment. Uh, it's a skill set. It sure is. And so you know, so when we think about reskilling and upskilling, that's another pressure that, um, quite frankly, I believe is a good pressure, but a pressure no less that businesses and people need to operate differently. Um, so, you know, there's a number of reasons why I believe this came to the top, but those are certainly a couple that stand out for me. Uh, I have a quick follow-up question about, you know, looking mm-hmm. at DNI as a as a skill. Mm. Do you think there's a lot of awareness amongst employers that that's the case? Because it seems like a lot of people made a lot of pledges last year and mm-hmm. now they have to keep their promise, right? If they want to keep keep their employees. Mm-hmm. And it can be difficult to know where to start, something that we talk about and, and look into a lot. I I guess it never occurred to me looking at it from an, an L&D standpoint. And now that I think about mm-hmm. it, it I don't know why. <laughs> Do you see that awareness amongst you know HR professionals and clients that you work with? Yeah. So um, I would say that of the hundreds of chief people officers, learning leaders, talent leaders, HR leaders that I've chatted with, and we are talking hundreds over the last year or so, um, I have not talked to a single one where this isn't at the top of the stack for them. And not even just for them as a department, but for them as a company, so to speak. So is the awareness there? Uh, Yes. And I think the good news is HR teams and HR leaders broadly, um, and especially DE&I leaders, of course, have been pushing towards this. This is like the ultimate pressure that can catapult movement instead of moments. So um, I'm, I'm actually really pleased with the type of rigor and energy. Um, now, with that being said, um, what I'm starting to see that is really, I believe, a seismic shift in the right direction is that the business, functional leaders across organizations, C-suite, are getting actively involved. And look, you know, we've got a lot of work to do in this area, but uh, that. I believe that we have uh, really crossed a chasm and more often than we've ever seen before, we have C-level folks uh, engaged in the strategy and active in the process. Now, we have a ton of work to do in this area uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an overall you know, like global workforce, but that action and that activity, I haven't ever seen it quite like this. Uh, and the, also uh, the type of innovation that is starting to come to because of that engagement in partnership with 
incredible DEI leaders, uh, HR leaders, etc. I think we're in a real place to make fundamental change. Um, it's unfortunate that it has taken this, uh, and certainly that is, um, you know, highly present even with the results this week. But uh, it does give me hope and, and you know, excitement really to keep uh, doing the good work. It is really encouraging to hear that. You know, I've been doing this for a little while, and it was always we have the HR people on board, and and maybe the leaders know it's like a, a little checkbox that they got to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of sol- solving has, you know, historically been done through recruiting, which is important, but perhaps misguided in the sense that you can't solve it with recruiting. You can only solve it with supporting, supporting people, making sure there's a place for every single individual that walks in your door to feel comfortable yeah. and to feel, feel safe. Um, yeah. For our listeners, because this is going to go live um, a couple months from now, uh, what she's referring mm. to is a, uh, Officer, former officer Chauvin being found guilty for the murder of George Floyd that happened this week. And, you know, that's a step in the right direction for sure. Let's get back on to, I mean, I really do want to talk about this a little bit more because it's something that's very important to me. Um, It's because it's just, it's one of those things where organizations have an incredible amount of power and and influence in the lives of, of us all. And you can have as many social movements as you want, but if "quote unquote" corporate America isn't doing it too, it doesn't it doesn't work. It doesn't impact so many lives as it could. So it's it's been very encouraging to see things moving in the right direction and to see that that lasting impact of it. Because I think it would have been easy to say last year when George Floyd died and the Black Lives Matter movement really took off. We're committed to this, and then it just let it sort of slip by the, the wayside. And I don't, I don't think that's happening, for, for once, which is really nice, really nice to see. Yeah, yeah, I would agree um, that this feels different. Um, you know, it, it's not lost on me that um, even before the the conviction was made, and then after we have two more. Uh, black lives gone. And so, um, you know, what's important, I think, for us to all stay very grounded in, I think, is exactly what you've described, that organizations uh, do play a role, Jim. You know, they play a really important role. And there has been, I think there have been more, you know, DE&I jobs, for example, posted on LinkedIn than ever before. So companies are orienting around it. That's a good signal. Um And we are starting to see even this week with the case, um, accountability, not justice, but accountability. And that word for me right now in organizations is incredibly important. You know, if we're we're spending all of our time building great DE&I programs and activities and trying to invest in people and bring the right people in and do all the things like that is incredibly important. But Um, it is really critical that we align on what are we driving towards and how are we going to hold ourselves accountable to get there? And what do we do if we don't, you know, what happens if a leader doesn't step in and fulfill the obligations of their job? Because this is part of business. It is no longer a kind of side project. 
right? This spans across, and it's not just for talent leaders. This spans across the board. Um, I was working, I had an executive roundtable recently with a number of DE&I leaders, and there was one person in particular that she was incredible, just on fire. And she said one thing that um, has become ingrained in my brain. I don't know how many times I've said it this week, but a lot, which is, we need an inclusive approach to business and a business approach to inclusion. And that last part is all about accountability. Let's do this in the way that we do business because it is the business, which is a, it's a completely different mindset shift. Not everybody's there. Even at LinkedIn, we are on a journey and working through this. Um, and so many organizations are. Yeah, I mean, it is a journey. There's no destination um, right. It's something that just constantly needs to be worked on. It needs to be part of the discussion. It needs to be uh, the awareness has to be there because new people are going to come in, new people are going to be entering the workforce, you know, and it's, it's things change, things evolve, maybe you focus too much on, on this group or you, you overlooked this other group. I mean, it's constantly evolving. I think that's part of what makes it so difficult it's because, you know, and this is a journey I've taken myself, you know, I grew up kind of in an insulated world, you know, I'm a, I'm a white man. Um, I, when I went to school, there were not, there was not a lot of diversity at all. So I just, at one day I realized, you know, oh my God, like I have all this automatic stuff built into me about how I view mm. the world and I had to confront it and I still do, you know, that was an important moment when I realized, ah, like I'm, I've been twisted in a way that I look at the world, the way that I look at people. And then I thought that at that moment, oh, cool, you know, I'm awake now. (laughs) And then Mm -hmm. I've just had to continuously (laughs) go back and look again and again and again. And it's, it's not easy. It takes self-reflection. It takes admitting that you don't, that you're wrong, which people will go to outrageous lengths to avoid (laughs) (laughs) saying that they're wrong. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, there is beauty crazy. in that process. Yeah, there's beauty yeah, there in that is. process. I'm, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you've that you're still that you're on your journey, and and I've certainly have my I've had a plethora of instances of failure. Um, I think part of it is how do you learn from it? How do you do differently? And that self work is where it has to start. Yeah. Um, and and we do have a huge opportunity here you know, to get to a place of equity. And to your point, it becomes so important. Um, Skills are one thing, and and that is critical to focus on. And though, if you have a culture inside your organization that recognizing and recognizes and reinforces behavior that is is not aligned to the skills you're trying to teach, the culture will eat it for breakfast every day. And so it gets to the culture, it gets to the system, and it's the systemic focus to rid the system of bias that exists, uh, ensure that, you know, you do the type of work to understand where there are issues in your talent management practices from bringing, before you even bring someone in the door to hire them, to how their experiences are at work to whether or not they are engaged and then perhaps vocal, active and beautiful alumni for your organization. So it's a, it's complex for sure. Um, but I'm inspired about the opportunity we have 
um, in front of us as a collective group, you know, it's a collective people. It is inspiring. I really like that quote that you use too. I, no one will see it, but I got goosebumps when you said it. So Hmm, it's not mine. I did steal it, but yes, (laughs) that's okay. That's okay. Yeah. 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 The one thing I did want to mention just to, um, to talk about the ecosystem here, because I do think this is important, especially for talent leaders, is, um, you know, there's, we can no longer look at diversity, inclusion, and equity in a silo. So there is deep connection between the work that L&D does and the work that DEI teams do and the work that talent acquisition leaders do and the work that people science does. And historically speaking, um, the silos, doing it in a silo was good enough. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, the pressure that so many feel right now is that is no longer good enough and that will not solve the big problem at hand. And so it's become like the ultimate horizontal layer that plugs into everything, the lens in which we look through anything. So it, it really has become a forcing function for talent acquisition organizations to co-create a strategy with L&D, right? To co-create a strategy with DEI. So we're all humming towards the same outcomes. And chief people officers um, are looking to make this happen. So many of some of the most uh, some of the most transformative organizations out there that we have the pleasure of working through this are tasked with what does the future of talent look like? And how is can we create an ecosystem, kind of a supply chain, so to speak, um, that is connected and not disconnected? Disconnection has worked. It will not work in the future. And it's not because this is the right thing to do. That's great. But this is about having a competitive edge mm. in business. Yeah. You know, so I just wanted to shine a light on that because it is uh, an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, it's really interesting, but um, particularly when you used, I know you didn't mean supply chain in this way, but that was one of the revelations I had was that DE&I professionals are getting into literal supply chains because what's the yes. point of having equity in your organization if you then turn around and use slave labor, you know, or if you're disenfranchising your organization or people that you work mm-hmm. with are disenfranchising people in other countries. It's a, it's a brave new world. I don't think anyone would have yes. talked about that 10 years ago, you know? No, I mean, maybe not even 18 months ago. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, and that, and that is a, that is a big shift. It is. Big shift. It is. Yeah. Um, uh, we promised we'd talk about skills, so I want to yes, reroute the it. conversation in skills. Uh, you meant uh, in the report that I read, there was this uh, idea of resilience as a skill, mm-hmm. and I don't think I understand what that means uh, or how you can train it. Do you mind just diving into that a little bit for me, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there is actually a great course on this, um, a LinkedIn learning course called Enhancing Resilience. Uh, by Gemma Lee Roberts. And she has um, defined resilience is really a skill. And I'll unpack this a little bit, but like a skill or a mindset you use uh, where you can develop um, to help you navigate the new working world, right? It's about creating your edge at work um, is how she explains it. And it's not just about, you know, learning to cope exceptionally well with challenges, but also learning how to thrive and reach your peak. I tend to think about this as um, how do you navigate through ambiguity, change, chaos, and be able to, you know, 
very quickly align around guiding principles, move, make mistakes, and be able to come back, you know, even when failure is right in front of you. I mean, this year, and I would argue the next two to three, and perhaps maybe forever now, change is the ultimate constant, right? And there are always going to be pressures and challenges. And how well can you navigate that and thrive in that environment and under those conditions? That's what resiliency is. That does sound pretty important. <laughs> and change yeah. <laughs> is definitely the new currency. I mean, I mean, perhaps yeah. my readers or my listeners will get a little tired of me, but talking about this, but before the pandemic, obviously things mm. were moving way too mm. fast and we were always behind, but I had content, mm. I had interviews lined up and articles to write. And when the pandemic came, they just stopped being relevant and we just mm-hmm. discarded it because there was, it didn't make, mm-hmm. make any sense anymore. You know, we we're talking about like office design. I mean, that's important right. again now. As but, now. Important now with the big resurgence. Yeah, in yes. a very <laughs> different way. Before it was like, that's how do you right. make it so that you can flow through your workplace, but people still have privacy, blah, blah, blah. Now it's like, how do you keep everyone safe inside a building? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's very different. And since then, you know, I mean, I'm even taking a risk recording this a month and a half ahead of time. Who knows what's going to happen mm. in three weeks? Uh, facts. <laughs> it's crazy. Facts. It's totally crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. What what forces were at play to make? I saw that digital fluency was was right up there mm-hmm. with uh, resiliency as a, mm-hmm. an important skill. I mean, I think it's pretty clear. But is there anything more about digital fluency that you wanted to share with us? I mean, I think something for folks to just reckon with is the idea that the future of what digital means and where we're headed uh, is not going to slow down. And so the jobs that exist today um, and the skills required for those jobs, including ours, Jim, like my, my role is going to change, right? Like we just have to reckon with Technology, especially now, because we all went virtual and there's a bunch of incredible innovators figuring out how to capture the opportunity because we're never going to go back to, quote, normal. We don't know what normal is anymore. And we know that there's great value, uh, deep value in technology. And so um, from at least from a technical perspective, um, you know, we just have to we, we have a real opportunity to. Uh, take a look at what are the skills that folks have currently in the workplace? What skills do they need to bridge the gap between what jobs are now needed and to fill those so we get into internal mobility here a little bit? Um, and how do we ensure that we're staying ahead of it You know, as talent leaders? This is where some of the insights on our platform, I, I am confident, can help in this area. Whether it's figuring out who to hire, or who to invest in. Um, this is a real opportunity for uh, talent leaders to, you know, get ahead of it because the future of work is not in the future. The future of work is is literally here right now and will just continue to transform at a pace we're not used to. The old ways of working need to be essentially tossed out, especially when it comes to talent. Yeah, it's it's interesting because one of the big concerns people had before the pandemic was, how do we keep up with the technology? HR managers uh, get just an incredible amount of different kinds of tech coming their way. They have to be trained on it to be mm-hmm. up to date. It means nothing if their employees aren't up to date because then they're not 
interacting with the systems correctly or they're just ignoring them or doing workarounds. I mean, now is a problem before. And mm-hmm. the pace of change now seems pretty much impossible. Where is the where is that interchange? How do we make it? How do we get to the point where it becomes possible again? Or if it is mm. at all? Mm. Is it just that we just let the machines take over and then all the people that can be upskilled? <laughs> I mean, because I'm okay with that. If that's what we're going to yeah, do. Yeah, let's just have the machines <laughs> run the podcast. Um, you know, the, 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 the word that comes to mind for me as I hear you sharing that perspective, Jim, is agility. Yeah. You know, I guess this is this is certainly tied to resilience, but in terms of how we do, how we work in the future, whether you're a talent leader or a learning leader or a business, you know, sales leader, you you pick it, you name it. The it's kind of that phenomenon of what got us here won't get us there, and Mm -hmm. we simply have to be more agile. And data and insights are our path to doing so. From one gal's perspective. You know, we need to be informed so we can move quickly and iterate. And the only way we can do that in a way that is smart and working smarter is to have the right level of insight into, um, you know, whether it be, for example, if we bring it back to skills, skills in our organization or how engaged or not are our people. Um, You know, there's agility becomes really important now and future state of how do we get to the place we need to go faster and smarter? Um, You know, and I think for us um, on the LinkedIn side, we just want to help our customers get there. And we sit on an incredible, you know, wealth of information with our economic graph. And we feel obligated to do this because we are able to help talent leaders move faster and make better decisions from, you know, hiring all the way to the end of the cycle. I mean, you guys are in an incredibly unique position to really have your finger on the pulse and really see what's what's working, what's not working. Not everybody has that has that position. No, it's it's been a journey for sure. <laughs> I want to talk about agility a little bit more. Is that something that can be taught? Cuz there's a yes. lot of rigid people out there. Generally speaking, yes. I don't know if we want to get this granular or not, but what is the approach to taking someone says, ah, I can't deal with all this technological nonsense. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't want to, you know, how do you break through? How do you Mm -hmm. set the stage? I guess that's where I want to know. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, we could probably have multiple podcasts on this topic, but you know, something that really resonates with me, uh, I can go back to, let's see, Five years ago, just about, um, uh, we were, my wife and I were about to have our second baby and I got the news that we had been acquired by Microsoft. And that moment, um, I was like, what? I mean, I was literally on parental leave. I'm like, wait, what's going on? And um, (laughs) (laughs) afterwards, you know, it took me a minute to like grapple with this concept, of course. Um, but there was a moment where I learned what Satya was beginning to do with the culture at Microsoft. And I had actually worked with Microsoft as a vendor years, years, years before building kind of custom learning um, at a company called Digital Think back in the day. But uh, what he has done to change the culture, and we talked about 
the fact that culture will eat anything, right? So um, Satya, Satya's focus on creating learn-it-alls instead of know-it-alls, at least from, from my perspective, was like one of the biggest shifts. You know, that's a cultural thing. This is what's going to be reinforced, recognized, supported. No longer is it, you know, it, no longer is it how much you know is what matters. Mm-hmm. It's how much are you willing to learn. Mm-hmm. Now, that takes years to 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 create. And I can only imagine like the, the journey that Satya and team have been on. Um, but what I can say is that mindset and then creating the cultural contingencies around what does get celebrated, who are the leaders that excel, who are the people that excel. If that connectivity begins to happen and let's say now use agility as the kind of overlay, um, I do believe that's where you can create a scenario where a company or an organization becomes agile. You know, there's a mindset, there's, there's recognition, there's reinforcement, there's celebration of failure. And that is very different. You can't, I don't believe you can really have an agile workforce without that because being agile is about, you know, being okay with 80% in iteration and not always striving for hundred percent perfection. Um, I do believe it can be taught. I think there are some people that, um, and, and this may be more generational um, as well, but some generations, let's say, that are inherently more agile based on you know, how they have experienced the world. I'd say Gen Zers, generally more agile than other uh, generations. But it doesn't mean that, you know, I am not a Gen Zer. <laughs> um, I am not a millennial, but I, I do my best to try to embrace this concept, you know, personally. And so I think it's like creating the conditions, investing in the skill set because it is one, and then ensuring that those things are tied together to reinforce that type of behavior such that that behavior goes up and to the right over time. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm thinking about, I studied medieval literature and medieval periods, mostly in England. And one of the things that was very interesting about that era, and I promise you this is relevant, (laughs) is that those that learned, and it was a very small percentage of the population that were educated, were educated through rote. These were the things Mm. that you had to know, and you memorized them Mm -hmm. all. And they had incredible Mm -hmm. memories. I mean, people people that could do that could walk into a Shakespeare play, and it's a little bit later than medieval period, but watch it one time, walk out and write down the entire play, word for word, with minor differences to the actual scripts. And they mm-hmm. have this, they compare them. That was the approach to learning. And that makes mm-hmm. sense in a world where you could memorize a good portion of the knowledge because the amount of knowledge that was available wasn't the same. And I think that those those roots found their way right up until maybe the generation before me, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe a little mm-hmm. bit earlier than that, where mm-hmm. rote memorization was how you went to school. And by the time I was there, it was, we're going to teach you how to access information. You're not going to memorize anything. We never had to memorize anything. I mean, a, a little bit. And I was, I remember being concerned about it because I'm like, how am I going to know any, remembering this stuff? Because we didn't remember, I didn't have the internet in my back pocket when I was a kid. I was sure. worried about this. <laughs> yeah. And then at some point that all sort of came together where it's like my ability to go find the information, find the answer mm. or explore until I get it 
that was the real lesson. That was the real value. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what you're saying there reminds me of that's, that's how you get agile is you, you Mm. can't, you don't have to say, I don't know. And that's the end of the conversation. It's, I don't know, but I know how to go find out. Mm -hmm. I don't know yet. It's a powerful, powerful word. Um, One thing that, that you made me just think of is how humans learn, how we learn. And, you know, we think a lot about this at LinkedIn, uh, especially as it relates to how do we embed the way people want to learn in our technology that simulates um, kind of the type of in-person connection that, that we all kind of look for and need. But, you know, we think about humans um, as social creatures by nature, yeah. right? And um, I think it's, it's, it's been long lasting where humans like to also learn in a, in a community together with one another and try to do that in innovative ways this is a major investment for us because we know the power of learning in groups. Um, and you know, even with our, we had a big, uh, release, um, this week with our learning hub, and this has been fundamental to, um, kind of our, our overall strategy to ensure that we can create the conditions for folks to learn together in a community-based way online and trying to bridge that gap, uh, you know, between the, the pure technical experience online, but what if we really can create community where, you know, we can learn way more with other people. It's like the one plus one equals three phenomenon. So yeah, what, what you said struck me because I do think that what p- humans have been required to do and learn over time certainly has shifted. And one thing that has remained to some degree is this idea of human connection and community. I think that becomes even more important now, given the pace of digital transformation um, and that need to feel connected to ultimately achieve more. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it's the number one response we got in surveys we did about learning before the pandemic was uh, for how, how people did training was in person. 70%, give or take, almost every survey yep. was done that way. And you know, that's a real challenge in, in mm-hmm. a remote world. You know, And even if we go back to something sort of resembling what it was before, which we probably won't, this, there were the remote things here to stay. It, we've, mm-hmm. we've learned the power of connecting teams across the globe. How do you create that community? How do because it is essential. It's essential. It's an and, right? Like I don't. I feel like I I yearn to be back with my people. You know. Um, I mean, I do look for that. So I I don't see in person learning um, falling off the face of the earth. But um, it is important that we look at the what else do we need? What's the and? Um, we know that. You know, community-based learning connects learners to colleagues and peers. And for us, we try to ensure that we're connecting, um, you know, learners to experts that are on the platform um, through our LinkedIn learning courses, as an example. And we know that when we do this well, we drive higher engagement and inspire the type of skill building that organizations are looking to build when they're reskilling and upskilling their, their workforce. So, you know, it's certainly the blend, which is what L&D professionals have been talking about for years. I mean, I remember when I was running um, uh, our sales readiness, which is like a 
learning function for sales at LinkedIn when I first started, you know, even LinkedIn was doing a ton of in-person training and we still do, but what we were always pushing for is how do we get more online? It scales, you can reach more folks and, um, and build connection through that. And so, you know, when we think about what we're looking at right now, we're trying to share learnings on chat, participate in online groups, be able to ask questions and get questions received from, you know, influencers or instructors. I think I heard um, not too long ago that when we think about these different social elements that we've invested in, the uptick, Jim has been, I'm surprised by the uptick um, in terms of engagement through these forms. I think we had a, like 1100% increase in people joining LinkedIn groups. Wow. Um, and joins from younger generations were much higher than older generations, which gets back to what we were talking about before. There was like a 20, 225% increase in courses shared. So you think about that virality, you know, if you see a person you respect that has taken a course or engaged in some sort of learning asset, you are much more likely to do that because you respect them. Maybe you want to be in their job. Um, so in a, in a wild increase in terms of, you know, activity, um, uh, on the platform for both learners and instructors in our course Q and A. So we're onto something here that is very meaningful. It's like, how do you multiply, put a multiplier effect on the same learning investment? You make it social, you know, because you're going to get more out of the same thing. It's kind of brilliant. Well, I wish I could claim that I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't, but I am excited about it. And I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, what else is coming out because we are certainly heavily invested here. We're seeing something that, you know, we, you and I included, the people want, you know, and ultimately will help organizations get that competitive advantage. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been great. I really enjoyed, enjoyed our chat. Unfortunately, we are we're out of time, but thank you again so much, uh, Amy, for taking the time to join us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, the time has been enjoyable and uh, well spent. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Listeners, we're always interested in suggestions you might have for what we should cover next. Please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorks Podcast with your suggestions or if you just want to say hi or really for any reason at all. Remember to tune in uh, this Friday for our next 5-Minute Friday episode and next Tuesday for our next full-length episode. Finally, you can listen to us now on Apple Podcasts, Audible, and Spotify. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works.